We all have heard about the birds and the bees. On today's Garden Time show, we tell you where new baby plants come from. We pay a visit to award-winning hybridizer Kevin Vaughn's garden, and we talk about how he's developed new iris, daffodils, hens and chicks, asters, and more. Garden Time is brought to you by Capital Subaru in Salem, Oregon. Here at Capital Subaru, we are family. From you, our customers, our coworkers, and even our actual family members work here. This is my son, Casey. We're generations ahead of the competition, and we're always working to keep you and your family moving. We're here for you. We make it easy to join our Capital Subaru family. All the support you need, from sales and financing to service and parts. We'll be here for you for generations to come. And generations after that. I'm Blake. And I'm Casey. We make it easy to join our Capital Subaru family. Where it's your, your way, way on, on the, the parkway. parkway. Welcome to the Garden Time Podcast. We're based in the Pacific Northwest of the United States in a Zone 8 region. This zone deals with plants that can survive in 10 degrees Fahrenheit or warmer. I'm producer Jeff Gustin with your hosts, Judy Alaruzzo and Ryan Seeley. Welcome to Garden Time. Uh, today we are outside in the garden. Um, we're at the garden of Kevin Vaughn. Now, if you watch the Garden Time show, or if you're a plant nerd, you, you know about Kevin. Kevin is a local guy here in the Salem area, but a hybridizer of, oh man, um, daffodils, iris, um, daylilies. <laughs> daylilies. I mean, so how many different uh, plants do you hybridize different varieties? About, I think about 15, 16 different kinds of plants. So it keeps me busy all year long. Yeah, you know, I start with daffodils in, early in the season and, and then go right to the asters and nipophia that are blooming now. So, yeah. yeah, but I mean, um, if, if you re any of you remember the story, if you've been to your local garden center, you've seen those huge semps that are like the size of your head those came from your garden and, that's right um, yeah. and you work with uh, distributors and and growers and once you hybridize a new variety it goes to them right once they correct uh, it passes your approval right and yeah. so um uh i don't propagate any of my own things it's like i have enough fun hybridizing but but somehow propagating thousands of plants is not fun to me yeah. so so i but other people are very talented in that direction i'm a terrible marketer too and these other people are great marketers they could sell ice cubes to eskimos and uh so i let them do that too so. yeah you know you know for the people that are listening you know we're obviously in the trade and we've been doing right. this a long time but you know for viewers that are listening hearing the word hybridizer what does that mean as a plant hybridizer so as a plant hybridizer, what you're doing is taking two varieties of plants um, and what you're trying to do is to combine the best aspects of both of those plants in a new plant. And oftentimes that fails, <laughs> at least in the first generation. But if you work it for another couple of generations, you'll sometimes be able to combine all the good qualities of plant A and plant B into a new plant. And then that plant is now ready to go on the market. So what kind of things do you look for as far as like traits or attributes that you're trying to say improve upon? So I grow everything out in the open. So all of my plants are hardy, at least in Oregon. They've, they've gone through the miserable rainy winters and they haven't rotted. Um, they've gone through the dry summers and still bloom. Um, their foliage looks good all year long, uh, like pulmonaries that don't have mildew and things like that. Right. We're looking for plants 
that have all good aspects. And, and then, of course, when I ship them out to the other nurseries, what they do, they, their, their situations are totally different than mine. Some are greenhouses, some are in parts of the country where, you know, the climate is terribly different than here. If they succeed in all those places, then the plant can be distributed and distributed around the country fairly successfully. Wow. So. And Kevin, when you say you combine two different plants and get the better attributes, you actually be, are like a bee. Oh yes. <laughs> I like to think I'm smarter than one. <laughs> some days maybe not so much. If you've seen some of my crosses, like, you know, everybody gets pulled up. Oh. It, it was not a good day at the ranch. That day, right, right. You know? <laughs> but uh, with other days, I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised. and. Uh, um, yeah, so, and of course I've been doing it now for 60 years. Whoa. So wow. it's, you know, I know a few tricks yeah. by this right. point. Well, we have people talk about GMOs and gen genetically modified. This is nature's modification of the genes. You're doing it by hand. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, and it, so essentially it is a bee. Yeah. 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 I'm just, uh, I'm making sure that the pollen I put on that particular stigma is that particular one so I'll bag a blossom and things like that to protect it from the bees actually so and then you have to wait for the seeds to ripen yes so the seeds ripen and um, then I let them dry that's what most of my seeds are doing right now is drying and I plant them late in the fall that that gets them uh, some the Oregon moisture and the and the cold temperatures all winter and and I plant them late enough so they don't germinate in the fall so they germinate in the spring. I get a nice flush of seedlings. They're very healthy at that point, all new growth. And I grow those seedlings out. A year or two later, I see them bloom. And then I start making selections. Now daffodils are slow, five oh. years for daffodils. Wow. So wow. It's, wow. it's a really slow process. Um, irises like these ones over here, uh, I planted those seeds, seedlings in the springtime and they'll all bloom next year. So, so a little quicker, quicker well. process. Yes. And then yeah. how many do you usually start with? I mean, what's like a, a big number? Well, like, average? yeah, the iris I try to do between five and 7,000. Wow. Wow, <laughs> those each year. Um, and of those, I save about uh, 2% <laughs> and uh, maybe maybe four, two to 4%, wow. depending on the, on the cross. And, uh, and of those, about 10% of that selected group becomes a name variety. You have to be so wow. brutal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it, you don't. You want to make sure that your customers are very happy with what. When when I put my name on that plant, I want to be a right. good one. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I think After there's all a, that work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. So I think there's a lot that you know. You we get used to just going to the garden center and mm -hmm. the nursery, picking up a plant off off the bench yeah. and taking it home and planting it. I don't think people really have any idea what has gone into no. <laughs> that, that plant. There could have been 10 years of work ahead of time to make sure that that plant sitting there is oh exactly the yeah. habit that it's going to get, that it's going to perform in their garden, be the color, you know, disease resistance, you know, the height that you want it to be. And mass propagation too. Right, and then sure. able to reproduce oh, yeah. it. Yeah. In fact, I, uh, when, other times when I go in the big box stores, my hostas have been on the market for so long that they're now in the big box stores. And, and it's kind of horrifying to think I'm being sold in one of those stores. Oh. You know? Well, speaking of hostas, let's go back. That was one of the first plants that you piqued your interest and got you started. Right. When did you start? I started when I was 12 on those. And uh, wow. um, the, in Massachusetts, the, 
it was a very much a hotbed of horticulture when I was a child. And my neighbor, Polly Bishop, was connected with many of these horticultural players in, mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. And one of them was Francis Williams, oh. who was the, the mother of hosta. He's got, he's got, got yeah. one name after that. <laughs> and so um, one day she came to my house and opened up the trunk of her car and it was filled with hostas. Oh. And she looked at me and says, it would be really good if you could start crossing with these, Kevin. And oh. so I did. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, there must have been something that that knew that you would be the person to do well, that. Well, and I think I had, I had some, my neighbor was good publicity for Aww, me too. You know? That's great. <laughs> but, but, but I think she also, she, you know, she was in her twilight years of her own life. And I think mm. she realized hostas are fairly slow. Mm. So you want a young person to start <laughs> on this. <laughs> well, I was looking right. and there was like uh, over 70 different varieties right. that have your name as a hybridizer that started. So a lot of these variegated ones, uh, fragrant ones, those started in your hands. Right. So the I didn't actually did my PhD on hosta variegation. Yes. Oh. And wow. so I was the one that discovered the, the patterns of inheritance. And so the, the initially the, the very streaky variegated things had very poor substance. Mm. And so I took Francis Williams, which had very strong substance, crossed it onto these, and I got this, immediately got a whole series of very strongly variegated plants that uh, had very good substance. And they're still being used today, I'm amazed. Uh, one I named Breeder's Choice, uh, all the breeders still use it. So, <laughs> yeah. and, it uh, and the fragrant one, I have a little story to tell. I was I, when I was at Miami of Ohio in graduate school. The uh, the uh, there was a really nice garden next to the apartment where I was living, and she had a, a great clump of Hosta plantaginia, the fragrant flowered one. And so. On my way to school each morning, I would grab a few anthers <laughs> of hosta plantaginia, and I would swipe it all over my variegated hostas in the greenhouse. And my last year in grad school, I had one full greenhouse just of fragrant hosta, oh. and this, this, it smelled like arbutus, mayflowers. Oh. The, the smell was overwhelming. Wow. Yeah. So you started there, and then you progressed on to other plants and up to these 15 now varieties that you <laughs> yeah. you work with. Um, what was the next one, and, and where did uh, your progression go from there? Well, the Semps, of course, the Summer of Even More was actually my first first thing. My neighbor in Massachusetts, she had a collection of 300 varieties, which was the most in the U.S. at that time. And um, I was driving my bicycle past her house, and she was out crossing, and... I pulled my bike into the driveway and asked her what she was doing, and she showed me how she was making the crosses, and she said, come back tomorrow and you can make your own cross. Oh. Whew, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you, when you talk about crossing, is it just as much as just taking the, the flower from one and the flower from yeah. the other and kind of rubbing them together and letting yeah, them do their thing? Yeah, in the case of the same of even what you do, you take the flower with the pollen and you just put it on a little holy. I use little for, pointed forceps, just force it right into the flower, and I use it to put it all over the uh, the stigmas of another. And so it's very, a very simple process. Kind of clumsy looking. But it's, <laughs> so we could really do it in our backyard, but I think, too, what you guys, I have so much respect for breeders because of the record keeping. Oh, 
it has to be so right. detailed because it goes on for so long and it that's yep. just amazing i know that i would do it and then i would like yeah, which one was that yeah, again? I know everyone in my yard has a pedigree, you know. Like, yeah, sure, right. sure. Yeah, because right. so, you need to know the the parentage right, of what's. Yeah. Yeah, there is no pet twenty three in me for. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there could be. There, but, could, uh, be. there <laughs> could be, but that's very important as a breeder when you, especially when you're distributing the plant, is to know those parents' origins. Yes. Actually, when you when you write your patent, you have to list the pedigree of the, of the plant so oh. so you have to know those kinds of things yeah you're you don't have cute names on a lot of your plants you just have numbers and letters so you right. can see it in your paperwork that's right so uh when i'm when i row out seedlings they all have a code mm. and um, that code goes with the seedling forever so yeah. until it's actually got a name yeah. so, so when so when you do go to uh, say um, somebody acquires a plant from you they have the right to name that correct but the patent lives with you correct so yes. um, and so and i'm in with irises i i am the registration authority i get the um, i get to name that plant for, for the iris um, but the others it's uh, like in the case of the chick charms chris chris hansen has a series of these now and so he, they go through, like some of them are food oriented. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I have a series of giant ones and they have all kind of mountains, canyons, kind of, you know, big structures, you know, so, yeah. so and so he has a group of four or five people in his group and, and they toss out names mm -hmm. until they're happy with one. So. And you have to talk about that yeah. most famous Chick Charms though, because that was such a breakthrough. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, gold Nugget. Gold, gold Nugget. Nugget. Well, yeah. that was a sport actually of one of, one of my seedlings uh, that I created in, in when I was 12 years old. Oh. It's a sport of Ruby Heart. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Wow. And that's yeah. red and green. Ruby Heart. Ruby Heart's red yeah, and green. Yeah, right. so went all the way to gold. It was a, it was a single, single mutation. Wow. Yep. Wow. So. That's that's one of the uh, the ones that just stand out in the garden yeah, center right. and very popular. Now we've got a couple generations yeah. on that. So, <laughs> so I, I know you've written books too because yes. you've had uh, we've done stories with you on the iris books that you've yep. written. Um, name some of the uh, types of iris that you've. I had Louisiana, right? Red apparently is yep. the holy grail of right. uh, Louisiana iris. So when I uh, when I my first job with, was with my first and only job was with the government, and I was in Mississippi. <laughs> which was um, uh, sort of an extreme climate. So, uh, uh, and I was at a government installation there in Mississippi. And uh, uh, a lot of things weren't happy to grow there, but Louisiana irises were one that did. And so I started breeding them. And my very first cross, uh, years ago I had uh, Ed Cross tall bearded iris that were red and black. And I got these interesting red-black shades. And I thought, I bet this will work with Louisiana's too. So I, 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 I bought a bunch of the best reds and a bunch of the best blacks, and I just crossed willy-nilly the whole group, and Red Velvet Elvis came out of the first cross. <laughs> so, uh, so it won the Debalion Medal. It's, it's actually, um, for I think four or five years now, um, Plant Delights Nursery in North Carolina, it's their best seller. If they sell thousands of it every year. So... Unfortunately, I get, don't get a nickel now. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings, up the, that brings up the whole uh, remuneration thing. So right. you can sometimes just sell a plant. Correct. Or sometimes you can maintain a, you get a little bit uh, from every plant that goes out. Is that how right. some and of it Right, it kind works? of depends upon the plant. So um, um, 
with the Semper Vivum, they're, they're, uh, uh, they're mass produced. So they're, they, they shoot for 150,000 of a given cultivar every year. And I get a royalty on each one that's sold. And I get that for 20 years. Nice. nice. Uh, irises are a different game because once a, once a nursery starts selling an iris, every other nursery is going to grab it. And, then, and irises tend not to be patented. Mm. And so everyone has it. And so you get profits for the first year or maybe a second, but then you get zero. Wow. So it's not quite as profitable. I find them so fascinating that I have to do it. So. Yeah, no, and it's interesting because people are always wondering how hybridizers make money. I mean, if you're, you're spending years developing different varieties, um, and how do, you, how do you get remunerated for all that effort? And I'm sometimes still probably making 10 cents an hour. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you get it. It's not like a huge amount of money, people. It's like fractions of a penny right. sometimes. But if you have, you know, a thousand or more and you whittle it down to one or two or three yeah. that may make it somewhere. You know, well, you know, it's odd too. I, I, when I came here, I was, I was playing with the Samson. I thought, I'll never make a nickel on these, but I like them, you know? Right. Yeah. And so, and now it's my biggest moneymaker. Mm. So go figure, right. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so Kevin, as you're a breeder and you're not really affiliated with any big company, so you you kind of have everybody that you can sell to. So is that unusual, or is it usually their breeders are attached to certain companies? Well, it's part partly what nurseries can grow what. Mm. So in the case of the Semper Vivum, uh, I have Chris that sells the Chick Charms and the Giant, and then I have a, uh, Mountain Crest Gardens in California. They sell the ones that, that don't meet Chris's specifications in terms of he needs tremendous numbers mm. and they can grow with a smaller number of increases each year and, and still make a profit and they sell for a bit higher price and they only sell retail oh. so so there's two differences and with the irises i have a person doing my beardless iris and a person doing my bearded iris and so culture for those is is sometimes quite different okay. and generally nurseries specialize in one or the other oh, okay. so that's the difference there very interesting yeah. that you kind of make those kind of uh, um, relationships. Yes, yeah. So it's it's always fascinating to see these the nursery owners, you know, come come flying in and looking at things. Oh, and, and they have very different opinions often than I do in mm -hmm. terms of, oh, you know, something that I've overlooked, it filled a niche in their collection, you know. So I mean, who picks that? I mean, you're just talking. You have thousands of varieties. Mm -hmm. Do you ha invite people to come in and help you choose the... Well, then uh, with irises, we actually have judges that come in okay. and, and evaluate. So, uh, so there that we have in that other... Uh, and if, if, if you see three or four judges saying, you need to introduce that, Kevin, you know, <laughs> that's usually a good sign, you know. <laughs> and it's not just always bloom, because um, we were just looking at some alliums out there. Right. And you're looking at foliage color. You're looking at the, the habit of the plant. Right. Yeah, so they've, that's one, um, one thing I'm a stickler for. It has to make a pretty clump. Mm. And a lot, of, a lot of plants don't make pretty clumps. Uh, they're, too, they're too sprawly. In fact, you know, Roseanne, the, the, the geranium there, I, I don't like it because it's, it's a sprawler. Mm -hmm. You know, right. it's like I want a clump. And so I've been doing things that make tight clumps 
and, but still have lots of bloom. So, oh, so we'll look for that because everyone yeah. loves Roseanne. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's but like... But it is a sprawler. <laughs> but yeah, but having a, a new one like that coming yeah. up, we'll have to look for a couple years. Yeah, so, so yeah. yeah. So, you know, when you have like these irises and, you know, you're coming up with, you know, thousands of new colors or shades of that, how do you know that what you have is different than what's already out there? I mean, there's thousands and thousands of irises yes. out there do you, is there like a catalog that you go through and well, well that one's a little bit different than this or you, you just... know luckily here in Salem we have some pretty big iris growers so, <laughs> yeah. you know, if I just do the little loop here in Salem I can see practically all the new things that are coming out and each I, I breed a lot of medians and dwarfs and then I also breed some of the beardless iris and, and here in Salem it's mainly a tall bearded iris town mm -hmm. so I can, you know, they, Shriners raise 40,000 seedlings every year, and it's hard to compete in my backyard with that. You know? <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, you were, you've worked with the Shriners, you've, you've yep. had, did autographing your, oh, yeah. your book there. Yeah. and yeah. Oh yeah, they're all great friends, yeah. and they're mm -hmm. such, yeah. such wonderful people too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, irises, what else, you know, samps, what else have you hybridized, what else uh, have has drawn your interest? Well, the daffodils, I started when I was in Mississippi. Um, um, the, I sort of needed something early in the season to play with, you know. <laughs> Can't wait just to the other. And so, and down there, of course, uh, and different daffodils do well down there, jonquils especially, and tazettas do very well. So I started breeding a lot of those down there. Um, and when I moved here, I, I shipped up, uh, I had two huge china carriers that the, 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 that the movers provided and I filled them with daffodil bulbs of seedlings of mine. And so, and so when I brought them here, I probably had oh, eight, 10,000 daffodils. And so I kept on the crossing. Um, Oregon's a little tougher in that you get so much rain during the daffodil bloom, it's hard to get good pollen. And so some years I get not too many seeds. Other years, pretty pretty good, but uh, but they grow well here, of course. And uh, so, oftentimes in four years, especially the jonquils will bloom, and in fifth the fifth year, everything blooms. So, and like you said, you know, everything is outside. Yes, that's right. Right. I mean, yeah. as we're we're sitting here in your yard, and you're amongst all these raised raised garden beds, there, there's no greenhouse structure. Around. No, it's, it, it is your yard. That's right. But that's really something for gardeners, especially in this area. You want to make sure that they're really hardy. They're going to perform for the gardeners, for, our, right. for our customers. So. That's right, yeah. What were you looking for in those, those first daffodils? I was always curious because people, you know, they're looking for sometimes the cup. They want different colors than the petals. And uh, what, are, what is, One thing what I've, are you looking I've, for? I've been doing is um, uh, the split cups, mm -hmm. which when I started back, oh, 25 years ago, they were a pretty raunchy group. They were, uh, the split cup is, a daffodil cup is actually six petals that are fused. And what the split cup is, it splits it back into those six petals. And so oftentimes they didn't split uniformly or they were kind of at odd angles and got stuck in the perianth and all kinds of nonsense. And so I started crossing the best varieties for shape that weren't split cups with the split cups. And split cup luckily is dominant. So I could take almost any other daffodil and convert it into a split cup by simply crossing it to a split cup. 
So I could take the, the most perfect daffodil, put that split cup pollen on, and I could get a row of almost perfect split cups. Wow. And if you go back to your high school genetic class, you have dominant and recessive <laughs> right, traits. Right. So the dominant ones, you have to be careful because they can overtake your breeding. In but this case, I wanted to. Yes, <laughs> yeah. but, but the recessives, a lot of times, are the unique things in the flower, and you have to really work to bring those out. That's right. right. Yeah. That's right, yeah. So yeah, oftentimes, I'm, I'm the first generation, I see none of those recessives, and I have to sib cross or cross back to one of the parents in order to get the colors or the traits that I want. So, but this was like, this was like fishing in a barrel with a split cut. So it was like, <laughs> it was like, oftentimes life isn't that easy. Right. So. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, people, people think, you know, it's just as easy as, you know, spread, spreading the pollen from one yeah, to another. Right. But there's a lot of science. I mean, we're, oh, we're talking yeah. about, mm -hmm. you know, the DNA of a plant and recessive genes and dominant genes. You know, you need to know a little something. Yeah, I do have a PhD in genetics. That yeah. does help, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then you had mentioned a mutant, and so then that's always that kismet, and it oh, could be yeah. something really great right. too if you that's can right. exploit it. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting process, and you know, every day, especially during you know, like the iris season, when you have, you know, five or six thousand seedlings to see. It's like Christmas morning every day, <laughs> or sometimes there are bad presents, but uh, <laughs> mostly good presents. Right. So those right. mutations are those generally sterile? Do they not spread by seed, or are they can they do that as well? It depends. So um, generally, they're what they call chimeras at first, mm -hmm. and so you'll get a portion of the plant that mutates, and it'll produce a sector that has the mutant characteristics, and then if you propagate from that sector, it stabilizes, generally. Sometimes you lose it, but uh, sometimes it's just in one layer of tissue, too, and that's a problem, because sometimes when, when you get a root growth off, and it's no longer that plant. So. Well, we've talked about on the show, we've talked about reversion, where, yes. um, and that's where we're talking about those stable genes, and, right. and the reversion, and when it goes back to the, the mother or parent plant and it doesn't have that cool look or color. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's, uh, the, the iris is not, is generally not a problem. Although one of the things I'm working on right now are, is it's called transposons. Mm. And these are little pieces of DNA that jump from one place to another. And when they, when they jump into a new gene, they arrest that gene. So it becomes a new recessive gene. Oh. And so, and then, um, what the other thing that happens with these transposons is that sometimes once they're in that gene, they'll pop back out and the gene works again. So you'll get a sector that has the gene working, but, but the rest of the flower it isn't. So you get these splashes of color of all different kinds. So I've now got them um, in the miniature tall bearded iris that I'm working with. I've got them, one of these, these transposons in a gene for anthocyanin, so I get a white flower with blue specks and I've also in that same flower got one in the gene for carotenoid biosynthesis so I get yellow splashes in other areas of the thing oh. so I got them all in one finally yes. wow. so do you have a lab that you're no. <laughs> I wish I still playing around with I wish I still and, and all of that or is it I was an electron microscopist for the government for 30 years so <laughs> I, but uh, it's it's a little pricey to have it all. <laughs> <laughs> but it come, it basically just comes down like you said. You're yeah. you're a bee and you're you're spreading yeah. pollen, and you just know the yeah. genetic makeups of the, of these plants. Yeah. In fact, Barbara McClintock, who found these transposons in corn, 
was ridiculed for years because jeans don't go bopping around, you know. And yes, yeah. they do. Okay. Yes, they wow. do. Interesting. Yeah. So. Well, um, this has been an interesting start. Yeah, so um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. Okay. Um, we're going to organize our thoughts a little more <laughs> because we have just barely scraped the surface of, um, of what you are doing out here. So we're going to take a break. We're going to listen to Capital Subaru. And uh, when we come back, we'll just pick up on more of this conversation. We'll be right back. Here at Capital Subaru, we are family. From you, our customers, our coworkers, and even our actual family members work here. This is my son, Casey. We're generations ahead of the competition, and we're always working to keep you and your family moving. We're here for you. We make it easy to join our Capital Subaru family. All the support you need, from sales and financing, to service and parts. We'll be here for you for generations to come. And generations after that. I'm Blake. And I'm Casey. We make it easy to join our Capital Subaru family, where it's your way on the parkway. For 75 years, Owl's Garden and Home has been a favorite destination of local gardeners. Starting in a small roadside fruit stand off of 99E in Woodburn by Al Biggie, Al's has grown to four retail locations in the Portland metro area that also includes a huge growing operation near Hubbard. To ensure that you get the highest quality, Al's grows over 80% of the plants they sell. This fourth generation family owned business is now one of the most recognized garden centers in the country. Stop by one of our four locations to learn why Al's is the first stop for Northwest gardeners. The dahlias are blooming and the fields are open. Stop by Swan Island Dahlias in Canby and stroll to nearly 40 acres of blooms. From now until the end of September, you can also enjoy specialty foods, live music, take a class, or visit our new larger gift shop. Check out our Sunday market, pick up some fresh cut flowers, and even order your favorites for next spring. Check out our Facebook page for all the latest updates. Visit Swan Island Dahlias in Canby, just 30 minutes south of Portland. We'll see you soon. And welcome back to Garden Time. We're with Kevin Vaughn, a plant hybridizer in his garden in Salem. And uh, Kevin hybridizes, uh, by your count, about 15, 16 different types of plants. Um, and so uh, we were talking about uh, Nephophia, right? Uh, red hot poker, um, which a lot of people, they go by and they say, okay, wow, there's red hot poker and it's the same. <laughs> you have found some very, very unique colors. What got you, were you just driving and saw one and said, I could do something with that? <laughs> A lot of times that's how it happens, you know, it's really? weird, yeah. I'll go to a nursery and see something and I say, I bet I could make it better, oh. you know. <laughs> or, the only thing that surprised me though was that how quickly I was able to get away from red. Because I'm yeah. getting some really, I got pinks and mangoes and apricots and creams and greens and you know. Two tones. And two, yeah, yeah, yeah bicolors yeah. of all different size and things with tips that are different colors and clear pinks too which is something wow. we yeah, haven't had really for different, a really Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. you see like the red hot poker like it's you know the side of the road you know it's like this big <laughs> six huge. foot yeah. tall and wide kind of monstrosity which is can be cool in the right yeah. spot but what we're seeing over in your beds is not that. No no I'm trying to uh, um, some of the series that, that they've come out with now are too squatty uh, mm -hmm. that I find. So I like them, uh, um, I'm going for two different sizes. One about move 24 to 28 inches, um, but still a big flower head. 
And then, then I also want some tall ones because there's nothing so good as a in the back of the border right. as a clump of these Nipophia, especially some of these in unusual colors, you know, right. oranges and things would really show up. So I've got two kind of things. And interestingly enough, the company that's, uh, that's interested in selling mine, they want to sell them in two ways. They want to sell the cut flowers oh. because Nipophia, you can, you can uh, cut, the cut the stock when it's, before it flowers and keep it in cold storage and then put it right into warm temperatures and two days later you have a whole Nipopia flower out. Wow. wow. So the florists are going to love these because they're so unusual. Yeah, you don't and, see uh, them at all. Oh yeah. And, so, you're seeing, and repeat blooming. Yeah, so that's the other thing I select for is that um, I like things that have at least two if not three sets of bloom. So that that's for the gardener and also for their mm -hmm. for their right. uh, you know for cut flowers as well. It's going to be a boon for both. So. Right. And the hummingbirds. And the hummingbirds. <laughs> yeah. He's not, I have I've almost swatted a hummingbird. You know when I was out trying to cross because oh. because no, they don't help in the process. Oh no. Yeah. Sure. Well, oh, sure. they're they're they they have an idea, but it's not my idea. Right. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> it's like leave yeah. my pollen alone. Yeah. Yeah. That, right? yeah. yeah. And you put I have little bags I put over the top, uh, which makes them not happy. But oh. <laughs> there's other things in your yeah. garden. Well, and there's plenty extra ones yeah. too. So. so you have to be really proactive when the bloom is starting to form to yeah. be able to pollinate and eliminate any other distractions for that Correct. for yeah. that right. cross. So the, yeah, so the the sempervivum um, uh, I use mus muslin bags over the over the the whole stock and that allows the pollen to develop undisturbed and then also on the on the female side so that there'll be no spray pollen coming in so and that's one of the things that the sempervivum for years people have just collected the bee seed mm. and it was just oh. dumb luck, yeah. you know, that, and <laughs> right. so, so, and, and I think that's why they never selected the giant ones, whereas in just a couple of generations, by crossing big on big, I was able to get the giant ones, so. And how I big think. are those giant ones? Uh, I'm getting, I think the biggest one now is 16 inches. Wow. 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 <laughs> the dinner plate. Dinner plate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. It's competition. Wow. Yeah, so it's, wow. it's, it's been exciting, and, and it's something I would not have predicted, oh. you know? Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I thought maybe six H in, inches, but right. I'm getting twice that. I mean, because we look at like Sempervirens, you know, there's a lot of Sempervirens. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they've been on the market for a long time. It's like, yeah. how many can you keep coming up with? But you're finding new new needs for it, like the size. Right. And then I've got some things that are jet black in the spring, at least. Yeah. And right. so uh, those are ones that are being propagated now. But so. then you're also, we were talking earlier about, you know, heat tolerance. Correct. Right. As you know, so as our, you know, climates are changing or conditions change and more drought areas and more heat, you know, plants react to that and are, so are you breeding towards finding solutions to those? So one thing I'm doing in this patch here, we had a fairly rough summer and the last two summers have been rough. So anything that looks good now, or in September, like has a good red color still, or a good purple color, I'm putting a flag on and taking a second look at it. I certainly, if, even if it doesn't make the market, I'll probably use it as a parent because it, I know it has great longevity for color. So, and that's so important, uh, especially for the, you know, the nurseries, because when they're shipping out these plants, 
right. if they're green as grass, <laughs> right? They're gonna look, the yeah. picture does not look like what I have. Because right, a lot of times you, know, you buy them yeah. in the spring and they're like those deep yeah. reds, and yeah. then by the time summer comes around, they've yeah. all faded out to green yep. before they go back. So those are the kind of traits you're yes. still looking yeah. for: is how can it keep that color in, yes. in the hot conditions? And I have some uh, some weird things too. I've been little knobs on some of them. Some of the echeverias have these little knobs oh, on them, and, yeah. and I'm getting scents with that too. And so. Uh, there's one now in propagation that has the little knobs on the on the leaves too. So that kind of bring, brings up another point. I feel like okay, you have sempervirens and you echeverias. Can you cross any two types of plants together to get traits, or are there? Well, no, there's yeah. got to be some limitations. <laughs> yeah, there's, <laughs> yeah, that, there's an alleged cross of aeonium in sempervivum, but oh. yeah. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Listen to the doctor. But you'll never see a rose crossed with a semper. No, no. So, but you know, a semper vivum there, but there are about fifty species, and so in all of them, you can cross all of them and get least an F one, and so, so that gives you quite a bit to play with. That's the other thing about the Nepophias. they seem to be able to. There's like, I think it's 67 species of Nepopia. Everyone will cross. At least oh. that's what I found. Oh. Some of them less so than others, but they will all cross. And I get, and the next generation seems like it, it's even more fertile. Mm. So Interesting. Once I make that cross, uh, that next generation is more fertile yet. Is there, there are some in like the same, same families. Can you take like different types of lilies? and play around within a lily family? A little it? bit, a little bit, yeah. And the same with the iris. I can take some of these dwarf irises here and cross them onto tall bearded and get intermediate bearded. So there's, uh, and then um, uh, iris pseudocorus will cross with Japanese iris too. Mm. So, but so, so there are some things you can do like that. But, so being a breeder, you have to be like creative, I think, and maybe look outside the box too. You're not just kind of, this is the holy grail I want to do, but you kind of look for other things too. Yeah, so what I do when I, when I make a cross, I have a, in my mind, I have an idea of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I have that, and oftentimes it's pretty close. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Other times, not so much. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Yeah. People right. come to you and said, hey, can you do uh, a blue you know, rose, or have they requested a specific plant? Mm. No, I've never had. They've always come and just seen what I've been doing, and, <laughs> right. and, uh, and get their socks. Can you make this one yeah. a little darker? I'd yeah, like right. a little bit shorter. I'd yeah. like it a little darker. And if you can have it bloom in the month of August, it'd be great. <laughs> the asters I've had requests because the, the we've had kind of a sorry lot of asters, mm. uh, kind of insipid colors and uh, uh, not such great plants, and so. Um, and then some of the uh, uh, the uh, New York asters are just you know mildew city. You yeah. know, so right. uh, so I've been trying to do things with those that get a better plant, and I'm getting now the colors that I want to. So by crossing whites onto other colors, I was able to clear up some of the muddiness of the others. And uh, that in fact, um, I was taught that years and years ago by by B. Warburton who was one of the, the big iris breeders in the in the 60s and 70s and and she always said that white is important not so much for being white but what it can offer to other colors Interesting. and so and it has so the whites generally have co-pigments and they and they tend to be clarifying so 
Yeah, the ones that we're seeing in your beds, the asters, it's going to be really exciting in a few years when those are hit, hitting the market. Yeah, because I've never seen such dark colors. They're beautiful. And yeah. pinks, clear pinks, finally. Yeah, so. And really nice habits because yes. they can get so crazy. I mean, they're huge. Yes. And it's like the gardens are just not big anymore. Right, yeah. So you brought up a good point about diseases. And we, we've talked about powdery mildew and some uh, varieties of plants are susceptible. And you, is that something that you breed for as well? Um, like mm. to try to minimize those disease? Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I tend to use, I, I never use a cultivar that shows any kind of disease. Uh, I avoid them like the plague. In fact, they usually just get ripped up because I don't want to even be tempted. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, there are irises that I've, that I bought, paid good money for, and after I've seen them bloom here, and I've not been happy with their plant. And so, yep, out they go. So, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, you were talking too earlier about uh, uh, breeding in fragrance and stuff. I know a right. lot of times uh, breeders will go for color um, like roses were known for that, and then they lose the fragrance. Is that something that it goes into consideration when you're breeding? Is it you try to bring all the traits together or just the best, and do you lose some sometimes based on your hybridization? Uh, I've tried as many as I can. The dianthus that I've been breeding are some really fragrant ones. So, um, so those, it's, it's, a, it's a real key item to me. I think the ones that I bred it out, it's, mm -hmm. it's not a good thing, you know. They, I like the smell of pinks. Right, you know? right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, the the irises, it's sort of a uh, if it has it, it's a good can be a good thing. Uh, although uh, the miniature tall bearded irises that I breed, they're oftentimes used in arrangements because they're they have stalks that are about two feet high, and so they're good for cut. And so some of them that have an off fragrance are penalized oh, because sure. no. no one wants to smell something skunky right, right. Skunky right. on yeah. the kitchen table. table. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. What are we having for dinner? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing how many different things you have to start looking for mm -hmm. when you're crossing and what you want to go after and what you're actually going to be able to get. Right. And, and I didn't, you know, I, I don't want to think, um, I know many people just, the Dutch especially want very stumpy plants these days and oh, really? i think we need some tall things still mm -hmm. yeah. yeah it's uh when i have a border like this i want to try to cover that six foot fence <laughs> with as much beauty right. as i can <laughs> well we also noticed some allium in one of your beds so right. what's what that that's a new one for you yes yeah I, i've been playing with a little bit I, um uh i had I like millennium a lot mm. as a plant and it's it's nearly sterile but i was if you cross every flower, oh, <laughs> you'll get a few seeds. <laughs> and the next generation can be a little bit more fertile. And so that group that we saw today is, uh, is um, some smaller sections of millennium mm -hmm. and also some with bluer leaves. That is and, nice. Yeah. And, so, and the flower stems are maybe a foot? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they're shorter than millennium. And, but they have the same kind of density of flowers. There was a lot right. of flowers. Yeah. There must have been like 20, yes. 30 on that clump we saw. Yes, yes. That was so, cool. Yeah, so I think that has the potential for the market or, mm -hmm. or at least another generation, you mm -hmm. know? So they are miserable things to cross though. Oh. <laughs> As you can imagine, it's all this flowers very congested and the bees like to 
across them as well. Oh, wow. So it's it's you have to swat <laughs> even when you take your bag off, you have to swat away the bees because they they're there. Right. Oh, <laughs> hope you're not allergic. No, not too badly. Not too bad. So when you look at you know you have all all of these different plants, you know all these different varieties you look for. You look for the other things. In your mind, is there a holy grail of something you would like to breed to get to? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was talking, thinking about that the other day. So the standard dwarf flowers are, have about three inch flowers, but they're on a 12 inch stalk and you'll generally just have a couple of buds. And the other iris I breed are miniature talls and they're about 24 inches tall. But they're much, uh, much less developed. They've been harder to breed, and so their flowers aren't nearly as sophisticated. What I really would like is to put that standard dwarf flower on that miniature tall stock. So I have something that's ultra sophisticated, brilliant colors, and that slender stock with, with maybe eight, ten flowers on the stock. So that would be, that's one thing I would, and I, I made crosses this last year in that direction to try to get that flower moved up to that stock. And so we'll see. But does anything that make pollen safe from you? No. <laughs> because you, you, you find things all the time. It's yeah. we, every time we come here, we're just fascinated. Yeah. So. I stay away from shrubs because that's too slow. <laughs> Yeah, Probably a better money maker, yeah. but it's. A <laughs> well, we even saw the gladiolas. Did yes. you see those yes, over there? Yeah. They're kind of hiding over in that corner. Yeah, there. no, that that was another case. A, a friend brought some miniature gladiolas to an iris auction, and I looked at them. Oh, I could be interested in these. <laughs> <laughs> so I sent out an order, and uh, yep, lo and behold, they have pollen too. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, they're quite easy. I mean, the parts are so. Any fool could do a gladiola because the the, the the pollen and the stigma are so well separated, oh. and you can just boopity boop and they cross. Yeah. So, yeah. so you know, so <laughs> for the home home gardener and people that you know play want to play around and come up with different things, um, do you have tricks on what they should be doing or how to do it? And if they do come up with something, what do they do with it? I think the first. Actually, raising seedlings and to flower is surprisingly difficult. Hmm. You know, you have to do, like I have it optimized now that the iris, I can get them to bloom in one year. So that means I can turn over that bed and see new seedlings every year. So the first thing I would suggest to anyone wanting to do something like this is to uh, maybe just get some, some seed from one of the, you know, seed houses and, and learn how to grow the seed to to bloom really well and actually then I would say um, pick pick something that you find interesting say you want you're, you're very interested in pink iris or whatever and so I would get get a bunch of the best ones and then just cross every one with every other one and collect all that seed and you'll get some pretty flowers you know, it may not be earth shaking, but mm -hmm. you'll get some pretty flowers and then kind of go from there. So, um, but I did it when I was nine. So, right. But it's a, there's different thing, um, a different process for doing it for the market than for just a hobby. Oh yeah. So mm -hmm. yeah, most people I think like to fiddle with it a bit in their yard. And mm -hmm. so, and you know, even an easier way is like, 
to not be so scrupulous when you clean up the, the seed heads in the fall. Because like asters especially, uh, if, you're, if you don't take those seed heads off, you're going to have a, a pasture <laughs> of asters <laughs> anyway. You know, right. and so and some people just do that. They find, um, you know, some seedlings in their garden, grow them out. Yeah, and they might be, you know, nice garden plants anyway, if nothing right. else. So. Right. so we've talked about a bunch of the different varieties that you hybridize. So for some of them that we haven't talked about, just kind of a quick laundry list of <laughs> ones that we haven't even touched on that you have uh, dabbled in. Well, I'm doing some pulmonaria because, um, again, I, uh, I've seen too much in the way of mildew and bad, bad plants. And, uh, and another thing I was, uh, most of the pulmonaria in the market are chance seedlings too. They just came up in someone's yard and uh, so I thought, okay, I can do better. And so it's been interesting. I've been crossing the blue flowered ones and the, and the kind of the rosy pink ones. And the F1 hybrid is actually either blue with pink stripes or pink with blue stripes Ooh. in the flowers. So already it's something different. And um, it's pretty easy to, you get very few seeds per, per capsule. They're kind of like a little nut and you only get two or three seeds, so you don't get many, right. much reward from your crossing. Mm. But uh, uh, most of them are pretty nice plants, though. So, you know, even if you give them away, people are pleased. So, yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and you've written books. So I know that yes. you've uh, written an uh, iris book. What other books uh, can so people I have, look for? I have two, two iris books. One's on the beardless irises, and then one on the dwarf and median irises. And I consider them kind of my missionary works in those areas because I think most people know tall bearded irises. I mean, everyone goes to the Shriners every year to, to see that magnificent bloom. But I think these other irises are, are certainly less known, but I think a lot of them are easier of culture or they grow in spots that a tall bearded iris wouldn't prefer, like, like in, in wet soil and things like that. The spuria iris here I find are very easy. It's like you plant them and you could forget them, you know. Mm -hmm. The clump just gets prettier every year. I like that kind of a plant. In fact, my neighbor in Massachusetts, she planted a spiria called Sunny Day in 1959. And when she passed away in 2002, the clump was six feet across and it had 50 bloom stalks. And so, and she never touched it all those years. It just got better and better. Wow. Yeah, so there's, I think there's a lot of plants like out there that people don't know about and so but the Shriners when I was there signing autographs copies of my books they were they were twisting my arm to do a tall bearded iris book they, we could sell lots of that one Kevin yeah, yeah, yeah. especially write a book about it yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I actually a toy I've got a couple outlines that I'm playing with so we'll yeah, see great. so people can find the what's the name of the the book and the the two books that you've I so say I have uh, one is called Beardless Irises, a plan for every garden situation, and Dwarf and Median Irises, jewels of the iris world. And so yeah. people can go online and find those. Yes, yeah. and I have a Semper Vivum book too. Yes, so. oh yeah, that's a yeah. Nice one. yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful um, one. So. And your talents don't end at uh, plants. You <laughs> play music, and you're in a symphony. Yeah, no, I play um, uh, in the Salem Symphony. It's a Salem Orchestra now, yeah. and uh, Salem Symphonic Winds and the Festival Chorale Orchestra. So, and uh, I play the whole clarinet family and the whole oboe family. So, wow. yeah. 
my other neighbor was an oboist. Mm. So if I hadn't grown up where I was, I, you wouldn't be talking to me today. Yeah. Are you going to cross those and make a new instrument out of them? Or? <laughs> yeah. and, um, I have to ask, do you sleep? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> no, but, I have a little, I have a little, uh, to, to plan my day, though, I have a little book by the bed that tells me what crosses I need to make. <laughs> and I read that. That's the first thing I read in the morning, even before the breakfast. And mm -hmm. it, it's in my head where those plants are and, and what I need to do. That's, and that's why I planted all these new irises I'm going to be breeding with in one bed so that I won't be running around the yard quite as crazily <laughs> as I do other years. Excellent, excellent. Right, any other questions, guys? No, I, I find it just fascinating, it is, fascinating, fascinating. What, what goes into, right. you know, a plant and when you go purchase it at, at the store, yeah. that it would, there was a lot that went into <laughs> make, making sure that that plant flowers mm -hmm. and it does what it's supposed to. Amen. Right? Yeah. So are there any plants that are piquing your interest for the future? Ooh. Well, of course, the Nipophi and the Glads are, are both kind of new games for me. and. I wanted, and now that I've gotten these clear colors in the asters, I want to see the next generation. Mm -hmm. I want to take the darkest reds to the darkest purples. Wow. Just to see if I get kind of that red-black thing going on. That's neat. And, yeah. uh, and that cross is already on the list. <laughs> <laughs> and how can people find your plants? That's the other thing, because people will be looking for them. And, right. But these, since you send these plants to other people to grow and propagate, they don't necessarily all carry your name on them, or correct. So, um, the Sempervive Mountain Crest Gardens, I think, has, I think, all, almost all of my hybrids way back to my childhood ones, oh. and uh, um, and then the Chick Charms, they're sold, of course, uh, they wholesale them there, and then um, a lot of retail outlets sell those again. So yeah, but I mean, your plants are everywhere, and. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's a little strange to see them at Lowe's, you know. <laughs> a little scary, actually. Yeah. You know, I've been in this yeah. so long. It's like, oh, oh, God, you know, and I'm no, a fossil no. now. Right. You know? No, no, no. no, no. But okay. you, you know what's been fun, though? Because with Garden Time, we talked to you for four minutes, five minutes, and it's been so great to talk to you for this long. And, you know, thank yeah. you for giving us all this time because yeah. we always would talk to you for hours when we'd come to visit, but we could only show you know, <laughs> four minutes story. for four minutes, and it would be like, oh, but we want to talk about this. So it's been great. No, I know. We've always just enjoyed it. I, we wish we could bring everybody here, but unfortunately, we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, but you um, can be found on Facebook. Yes. Um, he posts pictures of his new varieties and some of the seedlings, so they're, they're not named, but you can go see what he's working on and maybe even give him a thumbs up if you like it and kind of <laughs> help him make a decision um, on what to grow next. So, Kevin, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, I always enjoy you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's been and great. I'm going to have links to um, uh, some of the places, your Facebook page, and also yeah. to the symphony. So if you want to go yeah. listen to him play, we'll give you that opportunity as well. So thank you very much, Kevin. Thanks, guys. Um, we look forward to seeing you next time, and happy gardening. I'm Sarah with Portland Nursery, where our passion for plants has kept us rooted in this incredible community. A lot has changed since we first opened our doors, 
But through it all, we've remained family-owned and operated, dedicated to providing our neighbors the largest selection of the highest quality plants Portland has to offer. With hundreds of new plants arriving each week, you're guaranteed to find something exciting and unique. Portland Nursery, a passion for plants at 50th and Stark, 90th and Division. The dahlias are blooming and the fields are open. Stop by Swan Island Dahlias in Canby and stroll the nearly 40 acres of blooms. From now until the end of September, you can also enjoy specialty foods, live music, take a class or visit our new larger gift shop. Check out our Sunday market, pick up some fresh cut flowers, and even order your favorites for next spring. Check out our Facebook page for all the latest updates. Visit Swan Island Dahlias in Canby, just 30 minutes south of Portland. We'll see you soon. Here at Capital Subaru, we are family. From you, our customers, our coworkers, and even our actual family members work here. This is my son, Casey. We're generations ahead of the competition, and we're always working to keep you and your family moving. We're here for you. We make it easy to join our Capital Subaru family. All the support you need, from sales and financing, to service and parts. We'll be here for you for generations to come. And generations after that. I'm Blake. And I'm Casey. We make it easy to join our Capital Subaru family. Where it's your, your way on, on the, the parkway. parkway.